Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Dear Father, we thank you uh, for the scripture. Lord, we just uh, we pray that you would bless Tom with the, the teaching of this passage, Lord. We pray that you'd give him the right words to help us uh, just understand this, uh, this complex passage, Lord. And uh, pray that you'd open our ears, help us to hear what you'd have us to hear, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Good morning. If you've been with us uh, the last few weeks, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope you're feeling extravagantly wealthy by now. (laughs) Feelings are are a good thing when they follow the truth rather than determining the truth for us. This morning, we're going to consider one last beautiful facet of the outrageous wealth that Paul sets before us in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, the wealth that belongs to us because of our union with Jesus. And I'm going to begin one more time this morning with an illustration that God already provided. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 3. Esther, chapter 3. And if you have a paper Bible, put a page of your bulletin in chapter 8 of Esther, because we'll turn there in just a moment. As I read a few verses from each of those chapters, I'll ask you to pay very close attention to what is said about the king's signet ring. And that'll be helpful for understanding what we're about to see in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. The real life story of Esther took place in the early 5th century BC. A young Jewish woman named Esther had been taken as wife of the Persian king Ahasuerus and had been crowned as his queen. Uh, An advisor to the king, uh, a conniving and wicked man named Haman, had been granted very great authority over the whole kingdom. A Jewish relative of Queen Esther, a man named Mordecai, who had raised Esther, refused to bow down to this man, Haman. And that refusal made Haman so furious that he resolved not only 
to hang Mordecai on a gallows, but to do away with all the Jews in the kingdom. Esther chapter 3 verse 10 says that the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. With the king's authority, Haman then had the king's scribes write in every language spoken in the kingdom letters that ordered the destruction of all of the Jews in Media Persia. And then Haman sealed each of those letters with the king's signet ring. A king's seal was typically applied by pressing the face of the ring into melted wax that was dripped onto the letter itself and then onto the closure. When the letter was put in a pouch and enclosed, it would be closed up with wax and the king's seal would be impressed into that wax. If anyone attempted to break that seal before the pouch arrived at its destination, he would do so under penalty of death. So (laughs) a letter sent and sealed by the king's signet, always got to its destination. Haman sent letters by the king's couriers to all the provinces of the kingdom. Now, I didn't actually quote verses. I was summarizing things in chapter 3. But now turn to chapter 8 of Esther. We're going to look especially at verse 8. But again, I'll just kind of summarize what's going on. When Queen Esther became aware of the conspiracy to destroy her people, she put her life on the line to reveal to the king that he had been manipulated by Haman into killing all of her own people, the Jews. God granted Esther favor with the king. Since the previous decree could not be rescinded according to Persian law because it had been sealed by the king's signet ring, Esther asked that the king write a second decree, authorizing the Jews to arm and to defend themselves throughout the whole kingdom. And the king granted her request. King Ahasuerus had Haman hanged on the very gallows that Haman had prepared for the execution of Mordecai. That's what you call Judgment in kind. Then the king said to Mordecai, verse 8, Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. See, the king's seal identified him as the source of the letter And it imparted to that letter his sovereign authority. That authority made the decree in the letter firm, established, irrevocable. Mordecai dictated the new decree to the king's scribes. And he sealed each copy of the letter with the king's royal signet. And then he sent the letters out to all the provinces of the kingdom once again. Verse 10, at the end it says, He sent the letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, in the letters, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them. You think that about covers it? (laughs) To destroy, kill, and annihilate. With that fearsome royal authorization, 
given to the Jews, the plot for their destruction was decisively put down. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, Tom, I've read Esther before, and it's a marvelous story, but what's it got to do with Ephesians 1? Well, here's the tie-in. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the word for signet ring in Esther is the very same root word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 1, verse 13. It's translated sealed. And the usage of that Greek word throughout the New Testament reveals all of the same nuances of meaning that we see associated with the king's signet ring in Esther and in other Old Testament occurrences. At the beginning of Revelation 7, God seals His own people with the seal of the living God to set them apart from those upon whom His wrathful judgment is about to be poured out. The seal of God marks them as His. In Romans 15.28, Paul tells the saints in Rome that only after he has put his seal on the financial gifts entrusted to him by the saints in Macedonia and Achaia, that they entrusted to him to take to Jerusalem and give to the, the persecuted saints there in Jerusalem, only after he put his seal on those gifts would he be ready to visit the saints in Rome on his way to Spain. Paul is figuratively speaking there of his seal as his personal guarantee that the money would reach its appointed destination. In John 3, verse 33, Jesus said, He who has received the Father's testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. As the divine bearer of the Father's witness to himself, to Jesus, Jesus set his own seal on that on that testimony, declaring it to be established, unquestioned, settled. And finally, in Revelation 20, verse 3, an angel appointed by God throws Satan into the abyss and he shuts the abyss and he seals it over him. Same word. In that verse, the seal locks in and secures. In the concluding verse in this waterfall of spiritual riches that Paul sets before us in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, the concluding verses, he tells us about the seal that God has placed on every man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus Christ. That seal marks us as God's possession. It makes both our identity and our destiny sure and established. It guarantees against all threats our safe journey into the very dwelling place and presence of God. God's seal is our eternal security. And we who believe in Jesus Christ bear that seal right now. As we'll shortly see, that marvelous, miraculous seal with which God has secured us for Himself comes in a much more personal form than an official mark made with a king's ring. We'll look at the seal in just a bit, but first let's look at what Paul says that seal guarantees. His declaration in verse 11 
of Ephesians 1 rightly begins, I believe, with the last two words from verse 10. The words, in Him. Now bear in mind that the, that the verse divisions in your Bible uh, are not inspired. They weren't created until long after the text was written. Paul says, in Him, in Christ... Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. If you compare the various faithful English translations of that verse, you will find that they differ when it comes to whose inheritance is spoken of in verse 11. Ours or God's? A woodenly literal translation of the Greek would be something like, in Him we also were appointed by Lot. What does that mean, appointed by Lot? It has nothing to do with Abraham's nephew. If you go back to the book of Numbers, especially chapter 26 and verse 33, you'll see that God told Moses how the promised land was to be divided among the tribes, clans, and families of Israel. Once boundary lines had been drawn to parcel out the land, the specific parcel given to each clan and family was determined by the casting of lots. To this day, the parcel of land on which your house stands is called what? A lot. In an agricultural economy like ancient Israel, each family's land was the only reliable inheritance that would be passed down from children to grandchildren and on. A family might accumulate herds and flocks and other physical possessions, but that would change from generation to generation. What would not change was the allocation of land given by God. The wording here at the beginning of Ephesians 1.11, in him we too were appointed by lot, is figurative wording that likens our spiritual inheritance to the allocation of a physical inher- inheritance. And the phrase could refer either to us receiving an inheritance or to us being made an inheritance. So while most translations say something like, in him also we have obtained or received an inheritance, other faithful translations say, in him we were made an inheritance. So which is it? Well, some of you who know me probably know how I'll respond to that little conundrum. The question is, is Paul saying that we inherit God or is he saying that God inherits us? And my answer is... Yes, he's saying both. I believe there's deliberate ambiguity in the wording. Each of these two propositions is clearly declared in other passages of Scripture. As I read a couple of verses from Psalm 16, a Psalm of David, I want you to recall what we just saw, that the book of Numbers said about the land of promise being parceled out by the drawing of boundary lines with each parcel assigned to a specific clan or family by the casting of lots. And remember that the land was the fixed inheritance that every father passed down to his children and grandchildren. Lines, lots, and inheritance. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, David says, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. 
you support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage, my inheritance is beautiful to me. David is treating the earthly inheritance of the land allocated to his family as a vivid metaphor, a symbol that points to a spiritual reality that is infinitely greater and more valuable. The real substance of David's inheritance isn't land. It is the one true God who will dwell in that land with His people. In Psalm 73, the psalmist Asaph writes, Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever. Beloved, our inheritance is God. And God's inheritance is us. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Psalm 94 verse 14 says, For the Lord will not abandon His people, nor will He forsake His inheritance. Deuteronomy 26 talks about God calling Israel out to be His treasured possession. There are many other verses like those. Many. And as we'll see shortly, Ephesians 1.14 speaks of the day when God will redeem His own possession. The possession that He bought for Himself to be His inheritance. His church. I believe that Ephesians 1.11, in Ephesians 1.11, Paul is saying that in Christ, that means in through and because of our union with Jesus Christ that God brought about, God has become our eternal inheritance and we have become His eternal inheritance. And beloved, any way you look at that, that is wealth beyond imagining for us. This glorious inheritance is an inheritance together. It's a gift that we both receive and are (laughs) together with all of the redeemed saints of God. The pronouns in verses 11 to 14 are very interesting because Paul switches them up. First, he uses we in a limited way, speaking of himself and the other early Jewish believers in Jesus. He says, God who answers only to the counsel of his own will sovereignly predestined Paul and his fellow Jews, Jewish believers, to receive and to be an inheritance in Christ. Quote, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and even to the Greek or the Gentile. Why are the Jews first? The gospel was presented to the Jews first. And most of the very earliest believers in Jesus Christ were Jews. The apostles were all Jews. Every word of the New Testament and of the Old Testament were written by Jews. 
by redeeming Jews first, I believe God declared and displayed his perfect faithfulness to all of the covenant promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Jim Ellis demonstrated very well in his recent series on the covenants, every single one of the covenant promises that God made to Israel and Judah in the Old Testament has its perfect fulfillment in Jesus. But the great point that Paul is driving home here to his mostly Gentile audience in Ephesus and Asia Minor is that God's redeeming work to buy a people for his own possession was not limited to Jews. So in Ephesians 1.13, Paul switches pronouns from we to you, plural. And he begins verse 13 with the words, in him you also. He's saying that what was true of the early Jewish believers had also been made true of the Gentile believers to whom he was writing. That becomes a huge theme in the next chapter of Ephesians as it is through throughout Paul's letters. Our glorious inheritance in Christ is shared together with all the saints from every age of every race and every background and every former belief all brought together as one in Jesus Christ. See, God's inheritance isn't a person, it's a people. Now let's look at how our inheritance and God's inheritance were sealed by God. In verses 13 and 14, Paul speaks again, he speaks of this miraculous seal that God placed on all whom he has redeemed. And beloved, this is one of the most precious and magnificent promises that God has ever made to us as his people. It tells us exactly how we came to be God's inheritance and he came to be ours. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. In Him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. How's that for a mouthful? Those are two of the most loaded verses in the Bible and they are two of the most precious verses in the Bible. you got to spend some time camping out in those verses. Very soon after God brought me to Christ at age 16 through the faithfulness of my high school biology teacher, I came upon the promise in those two verses. And I cried tears of unspeakable joy as the Holy Spirit burned into my heart the power of what He was saying to me as His child and to us as His church. I immediately committed those two verses to memory and I've been celebrating the promise that they contain every day since. And that's been 45 years. This magnificent promise settled in my heart once and for all with absolute certainty the fact that I will spend eternity with God and with the people of God and His kingdom. And that rock-solid certainty has motivated and driven 
everything that I have ever done to serve our Savior and Master since that day. That certainty has made my life as a child of God a labor of love. Now don't get me wrong, at the end of his life, Paul told Timothy that he, Paul, was the chief of, chiefest of sinners and the only reason he could say that was because he hadn't met me. But beloved, I know whom I have believed. And my confidence is in Him alone and what He did. Listen to this. This is, this is beautiful. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 19 to 21 actually repeats the same promise that we see here. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 to 21. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and who anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, a down payment. Beloved, God's promise is never yes and no at the same time. God does not glorify Himself by breaking His promises, and He does not glorify Himself by leaving us in doubt as to whether they apply to us. Nothing will ever break the unbreakable seal that God has placed upon you and in you if you heard and believed the gospel concerning your salvation in Jesus Christ. It isn't the quality or quantity of my faith in Jesus that gives me unshakable confidence that I am His forever. It isn't the progress of His sanctifying work in me since the day that He plucked me out of the darkness that gives me rock-solid certainty that I am His and He is mine. He will be glorified through every good thing that He does in me and through me, but that's not what settled my standing in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. It is only the worthiness and the trustworthiness of the One in whom my feeble faith is anchored. It is the irrevocable promise of the God who says to me, Tom, when you heard my witness to my son and believed that witness, I sealed you for myself. That same certainty belongs to every man, woman, and child who trusts in the perfect person and completed atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whether you have come to know that it belongs to you or not. That certainty is your birthright. If you strip down your conversion to the bare essentials, you were saved the same way every Christian was saved. Paul narrates your conversion right here in verses 13 and 14. You heard the true message the good news of salvation through the atoning blood of Jesus. You believed that incomparable message, trusting that His blood paid for your sin, and when you believed it, God sealed you by putting His Holy Spirit within you. See, the King whose seal was applied to you when you first believed, that King is the God of the universe. 
And He didn't merely put His mark on you. He put Himself in you. All of the divine, sovereign authority of the living God was brought to bear to lay claim to you, together with all the saints, as God's treasured possession forever. And Paul tells us that the indwelling Holy Spirit is not only the seal who guarantees that God's going to get His inheritance that He paid for with the blood of His own Son, the indwelling Spirit is God's down payment of your inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the first part, the earnest money of your inheritance. And His presence in you guarantees that you'll receive the rest of your inheritance. Since our eternal inheritance is a person, or rather three persons in one essence, the triune God, it makes perfect sense that the down payment of that inheritance would be a person. And that person is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. He is God's seal on us and in us. Nobody and nothing can break that seal. Nobody and nothing can possibly keep you, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, from arriving at the glorious destination that Jesus went back to His Father to prepare for you and me. Leonard talked about that destination this morning. That destination is a heavenly city whose architect and builder is God. It's the glorious place that Jesus is going to bring back with Him when He returns the last time to claim His bride, His church. It's the new Jerusalem in which we will dwell with Him together with all the saints forever. If you have heard and believed the Gospel of Jesus Christ, God intends for you to know that these wonderful things are true of you. He intends for you to know. Holy living is grounded on that certainty. The whole Reformation was fought to reclaim that certainty from a a hierarchy that had co-opted it and stolen it from the people. You have been signed and sealed for God's courts above through faith in Jesus Christ and you've been signed and sealed in person. Your destiny is more certain than tomorrow's sunrise. It is settled. It is finished. We've been signed and sealed in person by God for Himself. And we are soon to be delivered into His glorious presence. In the last part of verse 14, Paul takes us all the way to that beautiful end point. The glorious conclusion of this great flood of outrageous riches that God has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons. He redeemed us through the poured out blood of Jesus Christ at the cross by which our sins are forgiven to the uttermost. He made known to us the great mystery of the ages, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and the things on earth. He made Himself our inheritance and He made us His inheritance. And He gave us the indwelling Holy Spirit as His seal, marking us out 
as his securing us for himself. And he did all of that with a beautiful endpoint in mind. He lavished all of these blessings on us in Jesus Christ, Paul says, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. That means, beloved, that when God did all those things for us, He was looking forward to something. You ever think of God as looking forward to something that hasn't happened yet? The God who sees the end from the beginning? God is unchangeable. We add nothing to Him. He doesn't need anything from us and we have nothing to offer Him anyway. But if you think that means God isn't looking forward to the glorious day when His plan for our redemption will come to perfect fruition, you're missing one of the most beautiful truths in the Bible. God paid the greatest price ever paid for anything to make us His own everlasting inheritance. And that price was the blood of His precious Son. All of His covenant promises throughout all the ages have declared the zeal of God for the laying hold of His people whom He bought for Himself. Over and over, God says, I will be their God and they will be My people and I Myself will dwell in their midst. In Jeremiah 32.41, He says, I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all My heart and with all My soul. Jesus' love for His bride makes every other love that we've ever known pale by comparison. We've all seen the great anticipation of an earthly groom to be united in marriage to His bride. It's a lovely picture. My wife and I have the habit at weddings of when the door opens and the bride is walking up, we're not looking at her, we're looking at the eyes of the groom and the face of the groom and it's an amazing thing. I was already crying at that point at my wedding. The pastor cried too, it was a mess. That reality, that earthly reality is a lovely picture but it's very greatly inferior to the reality to which it points. And that reality is the eager, joyful, loving anticipation of Jesus to be united to the bride whom He poured out His life to make His own. We are our beloved's and He is ours. The opening verses of Revelation 21 set before us the coming day when the declaration of things to come will become the grand announcement (laughs) of things fully realized. The day when God's inheritance and our inheritance will be fully in hand. Revelation 21 verses 1-5 through Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. 
And He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said to John the Apostle, Write, (laughs) for these words are faithful and true. What greater riches could ever be than the riches that have been made ours in Jesus? And who gets all the credit? Three times in verses 3-14, through Paul declares that God has lavished upon us this overflowing fountain of spiritual riches to the praise of His glory. This outrageous wealth is ours not because of anything that we have done, but only because of who our God is and what He has done for us. The last two verses of 1 Corinthians say, by His doing, Christ has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that whoever boasts, boasts in the Lord. God's highest purpose in all that He does is to glorify Himself. To show off His character in His ways to all of His creation. His glorification is His goal. Now that would be an awful thing to say about any created being. But because God is the one and only source of all that is good and worthy of praise, because His glory is His creation's only good it makes perfect sense that His glory is His goal in all that He does. His perfect plan of redemption has been heading toward that goal since eternity past. The glorious truth about the one true God will be unveiled as never before on the day when everything that Jesus accomplished at the cross is fully realized. The day when God the Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit lay hold of God's own eternal inheritance and we lay hold of ours. His inheritance is us and our inheritance is Him. Heavenly Father, God of all creation, we all praise and all honor and all glory belong to You. That You have blessed us with Your own Heavenly wealth is incomprehensible to us, yet we know without a doubt that you've done just that because your promises are true. You chose us and you predestined us to adoption as sons of the Most High God. You redeemed us through the blood of your own beloved Son, forgiving the infinite debt of our sin. You revealed to us your plan for the ages to gather together everything in heaven and on earth under the headship of Jesus Christ. You made Yourself our (laughs) everlasting inheritance. And You made us Your everlasting inheritance. The day will soon come when You will put away sin and the curse and You will receive us as Your own people into Your perfect kingdom to dwell with You forever. Father, we confess and embrace and rejoice in these glorious promises to the praise of the glory of Your grace. Make our lives 
the faithful proclamation of your goodness. We ask it in the name of our perfect Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.